This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Eric Jensen was 17 when he took part in a murder in Highlands Ranch. He's now 38, serving life without parole. Years after the murder, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that such sentences for juveniles are unconstitutional. Well, last week, Jensen learned what his new punishment would be, and his family says nothing's really changed, that it's a de facto life sentence. CPR's Andrea Dukakis is going to help us understand how his story fits into a bigger picture. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. You've been covering Jensen's case for years. You've interviewed him and other offenders sentenced to life without parole as juveniles. Why has there been so much attention on these cases? Because there's been a lot of objection over the years to juveniles being sentenced to the rest of their lives in prison, that it's just too harsh a sentence. These are cases where even kids as young as 14 were tried as adults and sent to prison for life. I mean, just imagine any 14-year-old and try to imagine them growing up in prison knowing they'll be there forever. Um, I'll tell you more about Jensen's case in a minute. But first, I visited him a few years ago at the Lyman Correctional Facility in Colorado. And here's what he said about how strange it is for him and other juveniles to grow up behind bars. Most of us have never actually lived on our own, you know, except for in prison. You know, we've never owned our own apartment. Most of us have not owned cars. I did, but a lot of people haven't. Uh, Never made a tax payment. And most of us don't have kids, don't have families, don't have anything like that. Of course, some of these offenders have committed heinous crimes, but then you have others who are on the scene of a murder, didn't pull the trigger, or in Jensen's case, where it's really unclear what kind of a role he played in the actual murder. Yeah, tell us more about his case. Jensen was convicted for his part in the murder of his friend's mother, Julie Bonez, in her home in Highlands Ranch. It was back in 1998. According to Jensen's testimony, he walked into a room as Ibanez was beating his mother with fireplace tongs. As I said, there are big questions about Jensen's role, but he did help dispose of the body. Both he and Ibanez were found guilty of first-degree murder and got life without parole. Both are in prison. How many of these kinds of cases are there? Andrea. In Colorado, there were about 48 kids under 18 sentenced to life without parole, nationally over 2,000. Now many are adults like Eric Jensen, and they're being resentenced because of U.S. Supreme Court decisions and related changes to state laws. Jensen, Ibanez, and others have been watching these legal changes for years, hoping they might be released. What has the court said? Back in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled these life-without-parole sentences for juveniles are unconstitutional. Then in 2016, it made the decision retroactive, meaning it also applied to those sentenced earlier. The court said these sentences are cruel and unusual punishment. There's also been a steady stream of research over the years that's found juvenile brains aren't fully developed and that they shouldn't be held as culpable as adults. Each ruling got offenders like Jensen and Ibanez hoping they'd walk out of prison, but it's been a really long process. When I traveled to Lyman Correctional Facility to speak with Eric Jensen, he talked about freedom. You know, a lot of people fantasize about having a million dollars or whatever. I I think about sitting in rush hour traffic, like how people out there think this is the worst part of my day and I would be sitting in rush hour like this is awesome. So after years of waiting, Jensen was finally resentenced last week. Tell us about what happened. 
At the resentencing, he testified about the remorse he feels for not intervening and stopping the murder. Several people also testified on Jensen's behalf. A prison official talked about Jensen's stellar behavior behind bars. He had a tough start in prison, but he hasn't had a write-up in years. He's also involved with prison programs that help other inmates, and he's earned a lot of freedom in prison. Just for an example, when I interviewed him, they allowed us to be in a room alone together, which isn't typical for a convicted murderer. Okay, and does all that make a difference in this resentencing? Not much of one, and the family knew this was the likely outcome. Jensen was given 40 years to life, which means he'll be eligible for parole in about 10 to 20 years. The state law designed to comply with the Supreme Court made that the only possible sentence for offenders like Jensen. Many thought the new law was overly harsh. There are some of these 48 I mentioned who were convicted of felony murder who are eligible to get out sooner. But in this case, it was really the only option the judge had. Jensen's family had hoped the district attorney would intervene in the case, but he didn't. So he could be in his late 50s when he's released, which his father, Kurt Jensen, says doesn't give him a chance at real life. How do you start a family? Uh, how, how do you have a career? What, what is it that you can do when you're 60 years old and you walk into the first place that you uh, ask for employment and they say, what have you been doing for the last 40 years? He's, I've been in, here in prison. Again, he's 38 now. And I hear what his father is saying there. But assuming he's paroled, uh, he won't die in prison as he would have otherwise. I mean, this is a change. That's true. He'll see some freedom. Now, there was another Coloradan sentenced to life without parole as a kid who testified at Jensen's resentencing last week. Jeff Johnson appealed his case and his conviction was changed. So he was actually released in November. Johnson had been in prison in Lyman with Jensen and knew him for 15 years. He told me Jensen was a role model to him in prison. I mean, he's always been one of those guys that's always trying to tell people stay out of trouble. You know, we got to walk walk the line. And this was still when I was still messing up. So both Jensen and Nathan Ibanez, Jensen's co-defendant, applied to Governor Hickenlooper for clemency. What happened there? Well, this is the crux of what has Jensen's family and other champions of Jensen so angry and confused. Before he left office, Hickenlooper granted clemency to several people, including Nathan Ibanez. But Jensen was not on the list. Ibanez will likely be paroled next year. Now, he admitted to killing his mother. He's even signed an affidavit stating that Jensen didn't plan or carry out the crime. Kurt Jensen, Eric's father, says he couldn't believe it when he heard his son sent hadn't been commuted, but his co-defendants had. I'm still shocked that the guy who admits that he did the crime can have his sentence commuted. Forget about who did it or why or any other reason. But if he's going to be out in 18 months and Eric's still going to be serving 15 to 20 years, that's just absolutely wrong. I mean, just on the basis of what people know. Why didn't Governor Hickenlooper commute Jensen's sentence as well? That's a big mystery. I've been unable to get an answer on this from Hickenlooper's people. Both Jensen and Ibanez have been model prisoners over the years. You have one guy who actually says he killed his mother, likely getting out next year, and another guy, Eric Jensen, where it's not clear how much he had to do with the murder, if anything, and he's not out for many years. Some speculate the reason Jensen wasn't granted clemency was because he got in trouble early on in prison, but that was in the real distant past. And it sounds like the district attorney could have made a deal with Eric Jensen's lawyers to change his conviction so that he might be released sooner. 
uh, maybe a sentence more aligned with what Ivana has got. Jensen's family and others say, yes, that could have happened. District Attorney George Brockler won't comment on the matter. I should say his spokesperson sent me part of a transcript of Jensen's testimony at his original trial. In it, Jensen indicates that he struck or accidentally hit Ibanez's mother during the murder. And the fact that the spokesperson sent that to me leads me to believe that the DA didn't really think Jensen deserved a break. Okay, what happens next with this? Kurt Jensen, Jensen's father, says his son will apply to the current governor, Jared Polis, for clemency. Hmm. He also says he believes Colorado's law, which again only allows for 40 years to life for people like Jensen, is unconstitutional. He says the high court said in its opinion that there should be more leeway in resentencing this particular group. But again, state law allows for very little wiggle room. Has anyone spoken out against clemency for Jensen? If they have, I haven't been able to find them at this point. But just because Ibanez was granted clemency, the governor obviously doesn't have to do anything in this case. I reached out to the governor's office and governor they would, yes, yeah. and they wouldn't comment on it specifically. But they sent a statement that said, quote, the governor intends to review each application carefully and engage in a thorough process before making decisions on individual cases. Well, as we've heard, you've spoken with Jensen in the past. He said in his testimony just the other day that he deeply regrets not interfering to stop the murder of his friend's mother. Uh, What do you think is his state of mind right now? He's obviously extremely disappointed. His mother and father, who visit him most weekends, say they're not going to give up. Uh, And of course, clemency is Jensen's biggest hope for release at this point. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you. CPR's Andrea Dukakis on the case of Eric Jensen. Jensen was sentenced at age 17 to life without parole, which the U.S. Supreme Court later ruled is unconstitutional. He's now 38. Jensen was recently resentenced and has about 20 years before he's eligible for parole. The Taxpayer Bill of Rights, Tabor, is on the ballot this fall. Voters will be asked if the state can hold on to any future rebates under the law. Critics say Tabor is one reason the state has had a hard time paying its bills, from schools to roads. While the ballot measure may be getting the attention, there's a powerful group of Coloradans that says the problem goes beyond Tabor. And CPR's Nathaniel Minor has been seeing what they're up to. Hi, Nathaniel. Hey, Ryan. Help us understand, uh, first off, why Colorado can't easily raise more revenue. I mean, certainly Tabor's not the only factor here. It's not. No, there are three amendments in the state's constitution that really sort of tie lawmakers' hands. And the big one you mentioned, Tabor, requires every tax increase to be approved by a vote of the people and also limits how much revenue the state can keep. Secondly, there's Amendment 23, uh, passed around 2000, and that mandates that the state spend more on K-12 education every year, but it doesn't actually raise the revenue for it. Mm. And then lastly, the Gallagher Amendment, which keeps residential property taxes very low. Okay, three amendments, and there's this group of Coloradans concerned about what's happening with this troika of amendments. Who's in this group? What are they trying to do? So it's a group called Building a Better Colorado, and it's backed by big foundations like Gates and Anschutz. Uh, The original idea, though, came from Dan Ritchie. He's the former chancellor of the University of Denver and a big supporter of the local arts community. And Ritchie says that a few years ago, he realized that there's a fundamental problem with politics here. State leaders in Denver weren't listening to the concerns of people in rural areas. It was really talking to these folks, rather, 
and uh, listening to their problems and complaints and their inability to get anything done about it at the state level. So Building a Better Colorado holds meetings statewide that insists are bipartisan. And their idea is to build consensus, rural and urban, as to how to move forward when it comes to the three amendments, or if to move at all. So a couple of weeks ago, I went to one of these meetings up in Greeley. And what happened? So they're kind of like a college political science class, to be honest. Like you have people in small groups, and they're listening to these presentations, super wonky, about these constitutional amendments. And uh, they're given by Reeves Brown of Builder, Building a Better Colorado. And he makes it clear from the top that his group is not pushing folks to do anything except talk about it. And what we're not doing is advocating for any specific policy change. We're not advocating for change at all. All we're advocating for is an honest conversation among civic leaders across the state about what they want their state to be. So throughout the evening, the attendees would vote for different possible changes to the Constitution. Hmm. It's basically like real-time polling of some of the most important people in town. And Building a Better Colorado has done this in more than 30 communities over the last few months. What were some of the solutions that they were kind of pulled on? Yeah, uh, let's look at Tabor, for example. The ideas there ranged from doing nothing at all to weakening the law to letting state government keep more tax money. And the latter, that last one, is what got the most support. What was interesting to me, though, is that most participants also said they wouldn't ask voters to give up their right to vote on tax increases. Which Tabor sets out. Yeah, and that's, you know, so unusual across the country, but here it's sort of like baked into how we interact with government. Um, And Brown also told me that those results match with what they've seen elsewhere in the state. How does this group, Building a Better Colorado, decide who's invited to these meetings? In every town, they invite the mayor, the leader of the local chamber of commerce, the school and superintendent, people like that. And then those people decide who else to invite. And in the end, they end up with a big group that's supposed to be you know, more or less representative of that community. And is it? Well, I called a handful of people around the state who have been to these meetings. And every one of them said that, yes, it was. And I talked to people in the San Luis Valley, on the Western Slope. In Greeley, though, I asked Tom Norton about that. He was at that meeting. He's a Republican and was the former mayor and also a state Senate president. Do you think there's the, the right people are in the room here today? Oh, I thought there was. I thought there's a good cross-section and a good number of people here that uh, their heart is in uh, representing the community as a whole. Why do you think it's so important to get the right people talking about the constitutional situation? Well, they want people who have sway locally and who also want to come to a consensus about how to proceed. And it takes a lot of work beforehand just setting up these meetings. But Brown says it's way better than a more traditional public meeting. Our goal is uh, is to get constructive voices. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, I've read, once said that it takes a carpenter to build a barn, but any jackass can kick it down. And I tell people, we're looking for carpenters. <laughs> so they're really framing this as a positive, inclusive effort. And Building a Better Colorado's executive committee is pretty closely divided among Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliated voters. But here's the thing about all this. Colorado has a long history of skepticism toward government. And, I mean, what you can make a good argument that Tabor is a piece of, like, libertarian theology. The man who wrote it, Douglas Bruce of Colorado Springs, he describes himself as a libertarian. And it's those supporters of Tabor, the really ardent ones, who say they're being left out of these discussions. I talked to Natalie Menton, an RTD board member and a big Tabor fan, and she's been aware of Building a Better Colorado since they started back in 2015. Uh, And what were your initial impressions of this group? It was a staged production. What do you mean? 
it was set up to generate certain responses. And uh, I attended some meetings, more than one. And although other initiatives came out of it, I, I believe one of the main goals of the organization is to dismantle the taxpayer's bill of rights. So Menton has problems with this invite-only approach. But, Even though she was invited? Well, she wasn't, actually. She wasn't? No. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I pushed her on you know, her criticism because I told her, like, you know, they do try really hard to get Republicans and independents as well as Democrats. And this is what she told me in reply. Sadly, just because somebody has a R behind their name doesn't mean that they respect the taxpayers in regards to this issue. So people like Natalie Menton say that Tabor is not about left versus right, Democrat versus Republican. It's about insiders versus outsiders. And Tabor is there to protect people who don't have power. Have building a better Colorado's methods worked in the past? Because you mentioned, Nate, that it's been around for a while. Yes, they have. And that's a big reason why we're paying attention to them. In 2015, they did a series of meetings, kind of like the ones I was telling you about. Uh And and what came out of them is a clear desire to have the Constitution um, to make it more difficult to actually change it. And so a separate group picked that up and turned it into Amendment 71. You may remember it as Raise the Bar. That passed in 2016. It did, right. So this, uh, you know, this is a group worth watching. Um, we should receive the results of their current slate of meetings later this summer. Um, and again, to be clear, this group doesn't actually take direct action with the information that they gather. It just puts it online. And then if someone else sees it and decides to do something with it, there it is. I mentioned a ballot measure this fall, Nate. It was pushed forward by the legislature, and it would let the state keep more of the tax revenue it collects. So taxpayers would never see a Tabor refund from the state again. Uh, That is independent, we should say, of what building a better Colorado is doing. Are these two things related at all? I asked Reeves Brown with Building a Better Colorado about that, and he says he's aware of the measure. He doesn't have any connection to it. Okay. I talked to some of the sponsor, or one of the sponsors of the, the ballot measure um, that we'll see this fall, and she is aware of Building a Better Colorado, but there doesn't seem to be a formal connection. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll make a few interesting uh, notes here, and one is that the legislature's ballot measure had almost no support among Republican legislators. But Building a Better Colorado's data shows that some local Republicans do support making changes to Tabor, kind of along the lines of what this ballot measure would do. So there's a real disconnect between Republicans on the local level and Mm. Republicans at the state capitol. And a question of buy-in here. Thanks, Nathaniel. You're welcome. CPR's Nathaniel Minor. For an informative and entertaining history of Tabor, you can check out CPR's podcast, The Taxman. It's graduation season, and we're being flies on the wall, listening to commencement speeches in the state. When he wasn't razzing university leadership... Thank you to the administrators for helping students through the red tape and financial challenges, and to the board of trustees. And thank you, President Foster, for... I I don't know what you do. U.S. Senator Cory Gardner wondered how the graduates of Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction would make their mark on the world. The things that you will see and do in your lifetimes will simply be extraordinary. The hopes and dreams that you will pursue, things that seemed impossible or unimaginable to generations before you. Will it be your generation, your class, that cures cancer? Will it be your generation who will live on the moon? Will it be your generation to finally see the last Avengers movie? Now, come on, you know it's not over, folks. You know it's not over, all right? 
Superhero jokes aside, Senator Gardner was concerned with something he said may be lacking in our day-to-day here on Earth. Just as knowledge puts more knowledge at our fingertips about how things work, how to advance understanding, our understanding of each other and the human networks around us may be in decline. The actual relationships we build with each other are losing out to technology and screen time. Because we live in a world where knowledge is so pervasive, so prevalent, so available, it allows us to surround ourselves in a world that conforms to what we already know or what we already believe. It's just a cell phone away. The availability of information, of knowledge, is so pervasive that we oftentimes find ourselves only listening to what we already know and debating the merits of what we already believe with those who we have already confirmed have the exact knowledge that we mutually share. But it's this very type of knowledge and sort of knowledge isolation that may very well be tearing our communities apart. An immersion of affirmation. To continue as a nation united and to achieve the kind of broad knowledge that drives new ideas, we have to seek what's already been said here, a place outside of our comfort zone. To pursue not just self-confirming ideas that can shield us from other knowledge, to take different views, new information, new sources of knowledge. That's what you have learned at Colorado Mesa University. And that is your challenge and your task today, to make sure that we're able to give back to our communities, to not stifle the the human networks that desperately need that human interaction. To challenge ourselves to break out of the silos, to recognize that people who disagree with us or hold different values and opinions are smart people, smarter than we probably hoped when we're having a debate with them. And that the reason they disagree isn't because they're wrong, it's because they have a different value or a different opinion of the knowledge that they share. But we can't let that tear our communities apart. Because over our lifetimes, we must value knowledge and, co- and community and connection, not just conformity. U.S. Senator from Colorado Cory Gardner speaking recently to the graduating class at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. The National Weather Service says the past two weeks have been record-setting for tornadoes in the Midwest. All the recent twisters made us think of Colorado's legendary storm chaser, Tim Samaras, whose work revolutionized forecasting. Samaras died six years ago this week, along with his son Paul and longtime chasing partner Carl Young. Samaras' legacy is chronicled in the book The Man Who Caught the Storm. I spoke with author Brantley Hargrove at the start of last tornado season. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Tim had an important first in storm chasing. Maybe this is what you mean by the man who caught the storm. Uh, What was it? Take us to the scene. In uh, June of 2003, uh, in South Dakota, near Manchester, Tim became the first human ever to gather data from the core of a violent tornado. This was something... Atmospheric scientists had been trying and failing to do for decades. So his measurement uh, near Manchester sent shockwaves to the atmospheric science community. How exactly did he do that? What did it require of him? Tim had sort of an unusual set of skills. Um, He worked for a research and defense contractor. And so he had a lot of experience with uh, research-grade electronics, uh, measuring blast waves, uh, military ordnance. And so he took some of this know-how, some of this technological wizardry and built a hardened probe stuffed to the gills with pressure, temperature, and humidity sensors packed into a shell of uh, quarter-inch thick mild steel that was designed specifically to resist drag and lift forces. It was actually designed, it was based on an earlier 
project that was supposed to be able to withstand a nuclear explosion. And Tim figured if it can stand up to a nuclear explosion, surely it can handle a plane's twister as well. And he, he called so, this thing the turtle because it, it was a shell. It was sort of encased. That's correct. And uh, in 2003, he was racing this tornado down a dirt road. It was incredibly dangerous. They had uh, debris fluttering down around them. He hopped out of his minivan, dropped the turtle on the ground, and drove away with the wind at his heels. And there it lay in the path of a tornado, and the instruments got into the core. In fact, it, where he deployed it on the, uh, the gravel road there, his instrument didn't move a single inch, even as a, a farmhouse just right next to it was uh, shredded and cast into an adjacent cornfield. Oh, my goodness. Now, people who don't chase storms got to know Tim during his time on the Discovery Channel's Storm Chasers. In this clip, he's outrunning a massive tornado while utility poles snap and explode around his team. Punch it. Punch it. It's going to start taking down some poles. Let's go. Run it, run it, run it. Right here, right here. How did he come to chase tornadoes? I mean, he, he didn't have like a PhD in meteorology or anything, right? That's correct. Uh, he'd been fascinated by tornadoes since he was a little boy. It started with the Wizard of Oz. Uh, he was always fascinated whenever storms blew through. I mean, if he was in class, he'd be looking up at the sky through the window. And so, you know, whenever he was a young man, he'd drive out to Red Rocks and just watch the, uh, the storms wash over him. You know, and then he, then he got a job and, you know, he didn't really have as much time for storms. But after the, the birth of uh, his, his third child, Paul, Tim saw a documentary on PBS. It was a Nova documentary about, uh, you know, these scientists chasing these twisters down. And he was captivated by these, these storm chasers. It was just – it wasn't something he thought was, was even possible. He didn't know people did this kind of thing. Hmm. And so he went out gradually, you know, just going out and chasing around, you know, Aurora – or, you know, just places around eastern Colorado. And eventually his, 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 his passion deepened. You know, he took a Skywarn course, uh, which is basically just this program where the National Weather Service trains uh, spotters to go out and sort of be their eyes and ears on the ground. So he took this course and became a spotter for the National Weather Service, you know, going out there and giving them ground truth. Um, because radar can often tell us uh, that there's a tornadic storm brewing, but it doesn't tell us whether there's a tornado on the ground. And so Tim would be out there reporting to them uh, via ham radio whether there was an actual tornado in progress. Uh, and so that was how he got his start, just, you know, sort of gradually wading in deeper and deeper into this world until he was, you know, spending weeks at a time on the road, driving out to Texas and Oklahoma, uh, you know, where, where the real monster tornadoes are found. In a vehicle that is just like filled with all of these kind of MacGyvered pieces of technology to track storms. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it, 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 there was a direct correlation to uh, his, his passion for storm chasing and the amount of gadgetry <laughs> that he would install in his vehicle. Uh, it was just various minivans that he would uh, – he, he'd cut holes into the dash to fit a you know a VGA monitor. And he'd have a 486 PC, which if you're of a certain age, you know what I'm talking about, you know, big tower PC that he would use to uh, – uh, display uh, a DeLorme roadmap because, uh, you know, roadmap is an essential tool for storm chasers. You've got to know what kind of roads you're dealing with. He loved to cobble together instruments out of just, you know, stuff he could scavenge. Samaris was well known in the chaser world as being very safe. Uh, tell us about his mindset when he was chasing tornadoes. 
Tim had a no-nonsense mindset and he has a mission. Uh, and his mission is to deploy his instruments. You know, by this point, he has various instruments. He's got the, uh, you know, his tried and true turtle probe. He's got a, a media probe which has a bunch of cameras inside it to take footage from inside tornadoes. And later on, he also developed a, a tower probe, which is the most advanced in situ probe ever devised. And so he, he was a man with a mission out there. He was very serious. In May 2013, the largest tornado ever recorded touched down in El Reno, Oklahoma. Uh, At its peak, it was a massive 2.6 miles wide. Uh, It was also one of the fastest. It had a massive storm core, but also had these smaller sub-vortices spinning around it, some swirling as fast as 175 miles per hour. Oklahoma meteorologist Gary Englund followed the El Reno storm as it developed. Okay, it's turned a little to the south and a little more to the southeast. So we'll put a different uh, loop, a different uh, projection on this. But El Reno continued the tornado precautions. Union City continued the tornado precautions. Uh, mentioned Mustang over to Will Rogers World Airport. Take immediate tornado precautions. Below ground is best. Below ground is Take best. us into the field that day. Uh, storm chasers from around the country had descended on this El Reno storm. That's right. And... Just from that clip you just played, uh, you can hear Gary England struggling to pin down this tornado's trajectory. And this was something that Tim, Carl, and Paul, as they were working to intercept this tornado, struggled with as well. Uh, The tornado was going by points uh, south, southeast, east. Most tornadoes maintain a fairly straight-on trajectory of northeast. Hmm. This tornado was all over the place, and so it presented a huge challenge. In addition to that, it was rain-wrapped, and there's nothing more dangerous than the tornado you can't see. Uh, And so I think for much of the chase, they couldn't see what they were chasing. They just knew that it was to to the south of them somewhere, and they were attempting to get ahead of it, maybe drop down a little south if need be, and deploy and then get out of the way. And at one point during the chase, Tim, Carl, and Paul actually penetrate – the tornado's debris core. There's a piece of debris that actually rings off of the frame of their vehicle. Tim immediately recognizes that this is incredibly dangerous and that they need to, they need to flee north immediately. And so at the next uh, north road, they, they head that way and then they, they, they put a little distance between themselves and the tornado. Then they go east. And all the while, they're having trouble keeping track of this thing. Tell us how that day ended for them. Well, as they were traveling east down this dirt road, they can't see the tornado, but they know it's to their south. And there's a point where the rain begins to intensify. Uh, the winds pick up. At one point, the winds are uh, well in excess of 100 miles per hour. They're struggling with uh, the road conditions. Uh, the road's incredibly muddy. Uh, from what we've been able to uh, understand about their forward speed, they were probably moving at that point no more than 20 or 30 miles per hour. Uh, these are awful, awful conditions. And at some point, uh, the, the DSLR camera that had been recording throughout most of this chase uh, reaches the limit of its uh, storage disk and goes silent. And not long after that, probably a few minutes, they are overtaken by the uh, sort of outer circulation of the tornado. The subvortex of the tornado is this tornado within the larger tornado. Uh, has been looping around uh, the tornado's periphery, the mother tornado's periphery. And it picked them up into its core flow, carried their vehicle south of the road, uh, then east, 
then to the northeast, uh, and after about 600 yards or so, deposited their vehicle into a canola field. And these were the first known storm chaser deaths. As impossible as it is to believe, yes, these were the first storm chasers ever killed by a tornado. Usually you're more likely to uh, encounter danger on the drive to the tornado, not so much from the tornado itself. And, you know, I think part of what contributed that was just the nature of Tim's mission. Um, it was dangerous. He had to get in front of tornadoes to to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. And um, that put him in some, in some pretty tricky spots. Um, and... You know, he came up against a tornado that was unlike anything he'd ever seen. It upended everything he thought he knew. And so this was something that I I think he knew was possible. I think he was worried more and more uh, that tornado chasers were getting too close. But it ended up being him and his son and Carl. Yeah, father and son. There's something particularly painful about that. It's it's heartbreaking. What is Tim Samaras' legacy? His legacy, I would say is his data has been immensely useful to uh, vortex modelers, people who use computers to model idealized tornadoes. Before, they had a blank space in the equation. They had no data for the lowest level of the tornado, what they call the boundary layer. Hmm. And so Tim filled that in. And you look at any numerical models uh, of tornadoes, uh, published papers about those, you're going to see Tim Samaras cited uh, to this day. For engineers, Tim gave them actual wind speeds to know what to build against. You know, before, all they had to go off of Oh, you, was, you mean like build homes, build buildings, build barns, things that might withstand storms. Exactly, exactly. You know, before, all they had was uh, estimates from damage surveys. You know, you go look at a house. Okay, what would it take to bring this house down? So it's a range. It's an estimate. Tim gave them pretty precise figures. Hmm. The third thing I would say his legacy uh, provided was something a little harder to pin down. You know, before Tim got this this groundbreaking measurement, you know, researchers had largely given up on that. Tim showed that it was possible. And so now other researchers are going in his footsteps. Uh, you know, researchers like uh, Joshua Werman in uh, Boulder, Colorado, the founder of the Center for Severe Weather Research. Uh, he has uh, crews who are deploying pods. Uh, to this day, they're still going out there and trying to get ground-level data from tornadoes, and they've gotten really close, closer than anybody except Tim. Well, I want to end with Tim Samaras in his own words, talking about why storm chasing was his passion. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I enjoy the hell out of it. I really do. Out here watching the the great clouds, the great storms, you never know exactly what you're going to find. Brantley, thanks for being with us. It was my pleasure. Journalist Brantley Hargrove speaking with me last year. He wrote The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. Samaras died May 31st, 2013, along with his son Paul and chasing partner Carl Young. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. He's known as the acoustic ninja for his mastery of the acoustic guitar. Trace Bundy of Boulder has wowed audiences around the world with his distinctive playing style, a blend of finger-picking, looping, and two-hand tapping that's as impressive to watch as it is to hear. 
Bundy has gotten millions of views on YouTube for his original music and his arrangements of pop, classical, and rock songs. Bundy's most recent album is Elephant King. Trace Bundy is a featured performer at TEDx Boulder this Saturday at Chautauqua Auditorium. And Trace, welcome to the program. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks. You grew up in Buena Vista, Colorado. Buena. That was a good pronunciation. I'm Thank impressed. You. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody gets that. Versus Buena. How did you start playing guitar? So uh, my my brother was really into heavy metal. And so he, he you know, would listen to all the, you know, Metallica and Megadeth and stuff. And he'd... he'd he wanted to be able to play these riffs. And so we were walking around town one day. We were, we were I think I was 10 years old. He was probably 14. And, and we saw a yard sale. And we walked over. And there's a, a little acoustic guitar, just a really junky little acoustic guitar. And it was $10 at this yard sale. And, and the way I remember it, we both had $10 or $5 in each of our pockets. So we pulled those out, combined forces, and we bought this uh, little acoustic guitar. And what was the state of the strings? Do you remember? They were horrible. Horrible. Terrible action on the guitar. It was hard to play, but uh, but it did the job. And I remember we, we that same day we went to the grocery store, which had, you know, the like rack of all the magazines. And there was a heavy metal magazine, uh, like a guitar magazine rather, that said like, you know, play these these five heavy metal songs. And the first one on the list was by Metallica. And it was the song called One. And uh, we... We grabbed that magazine and, and went home and, and learned uh, how to play one by Metallica on this acoustic guitar. <laughs> and you had had some exposure to music clearly before that then? No. I mean, no. That, I mean, I liked music, but no, no musical instrument background, no lessons. I, I couldn't sing, play piano, nothing. You consider yourself self-taught? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Your first performances were solo shows at coffee shops yeah. in BV. Yep. Uh, but the typical singer-songwriter material was not really for you. Uh, how did you start writing instrumental guitar music? Well, I've, I've, I've always been a terrible singer, and I still am. I, and and, uh, <laughs> and so I, I just stuck with the guitar, and I, I started, probably like most people, by learning other people's songs. So, you know, uh, Simon and Garfunkel songs, Cat Stevens, Beatles. I was really into, like, my, you know, old folk stuff. My, my parents had some records from when they grew up with, like, these old, you know, old kind of acoustic folk stuff. And, and so uh, I got into those, learned those kind of finger-picking patterns. And then each time you learn someone else's song, you learn maybe one little trick or one little uh, riff that, that you can kind of uh, maybe influence your, your writing. And tell me about embarking on your own writing. What was the first material you wrote? So the first stuff was, was just normal finger-picking things, where you're trying to create a nice melody, a nice chord progression, maybe something kind of unique in there. And I did that for a while, and I'd play yeah, at these little coffee shops and, and with friends and stuff, and, and if you made like 20 bucks, that'd be pretty cool. Oh. And, then, uh, and then one time I was sitting on my bed, I remember this pretty clear, I was sitting on my bed, and I started playing this guitar riff with one hand. And, and I remember looking at my, my, my right hand and I was like, I'm not even using this at all. Like, what could I do? And I reached over and I played like a little bass note with, with my right hand while playing a melody with my left hand. And, and it, this little song came together. It became the song um, uh, Dueling Ninjas. Mm-hmm. 
Acoustic Ninja, Trace Bundy of Boulder, is our guest. How did that nickname, Acoustic Ninja, come about? <laughs> that's a that's a funny story because I, I I wrote a song back in the day and I, I named it Acoustic Ninja just purely because I thought it was a funny combination of two words, you know, acoustic, acoustic and ninja. And ninja. <laughs> they don't really go together <laughs> in any way, and uh, and so the, the song became kind of popular and a. Um, a newspaper up in Fort Collins wrote an article about me, and they it was entitled uh, "Attack of the Acoustic Ninja," and that was the first time someone referred to myself as Acoustic Ninja. And I was like, "Wait, I, that's not how what it's supposed to be. Like, I'm not the Acoustic Ninja." And and, uh, and that was many years ago. And, and then more and more people kind of start attributing that title, and and so it, it, it happened. Just stuck. Just, it just stuck. Yeah. listen to your tracks i often wonder if your hands and arms get tired they do they do yeah they there's certain muscles it's funny because i i I enjoy rock climbing as well and i can't rock climb anywhere near like like it has to be two or three days before i play a show because it's the similar muscles you're you're gripping the guitar you're moving it fast you're using your fingers and all those fingers are tied into tendons throughout your arm and man it gets it gets sore especially that song dueling ninjas because it's like you're you're like doing playing a really hard typewriter on your guitar for about four minutes long. Okay, show me your right hand really quickly. Yeah. Okay, you have grown out your nails, which is typical for a guitarist, but I have to think that's very difficult for a rock climber. Yeah, yes. And in fact, I, I, I don't grow out my nails. Uh, I don't like to talk about this, but these are fake nails. They're acrylic. So oh. I, I have to go to a nail salon about once every month and a half or two. <laughs> And that helps you pick. <laughs> that helps me pick. That's for no other reason. Yeah. So, so, so if you can imagine, it's like having five thick guitar picks on my hand, and and so I use all five of those. And uh, yeah, so for climbing, yeah, you lose a good kind of eighth inch of of uh, you know space on each rock. I'm sorry, I didn't know you you didn't like to talk about that. Well, but I put you thank on the you. Spot. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, now everybody <laughs> knows. <laughs> Okay, so those who've seen you play know that you have a very distinctive style. I mean, just the dexterity you have is astounding. As we said, you're self-taught. How would you say you developed your technique, though? You know, which kind of breaks the rules in many respects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly a lot of time sitting uh, alone with the guitar, just just trying to come up with any different techniques I could. And I mentioned earlier, you know, I do have a, a bad singing voice, which I thought was kind of my curse. Like, I really thought that every musician who's going to make it has to be able to sing. And but but I had a terrible voice, so so all of my effort went into the guitar, and 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 to kind of maybe compensate for my lack of singing, I tried to just come up with a lot of techniques outside the box that would be fun to watch, fun to listen to, you know, good sound and good melodies and try to, yeah. I know that capos play into this. Tell us what a capo is and help us understand how you use it and them because you often use 
many. <laughs> so, so normally a capo, it's just a, a, a clamp that will clamp down all six strings on the guitar. And then what I've done is, is customize them, cut holes in them, like made little tunnels through them, cut the end off with a hacksaw, bent them, did different things so that they, they don't cover all six strings. They might only cover five, might cover four, maybe two. Um, and so you can, you know, anytime you're playing, you're like this, you know, this isn't, this doesn't sound right. If, if I could have these two notes being played the whole song, you know, that would be cooler and I could do a, another, a better riff or something. And so then I would make a capo that would do that. Here is a five capo song. It's hot capo stew. <laughs> yeah. Trace Bundy, you've had a lot of success in music and a huge social media following, all as an independent artist. I wonder why you decided to work without a record label. Yeah, I don't know what... Some, for some reason, I just was afraid of the record industry. I don't know if I heard horror stories of of artists just having the life sucked out of them by a record label or by by record executives and I just thought I think that's a common story it, it, it seems no like doubt it. Yeah. you would have heard yeah. it yeah and so I thought I I want I want to buck the system I don't want anything to do with the record industry I just want to create music develop a core group of fans around me and if they like my music enough they'll spread the word and so it's been this pretty organic process for 15 years but have record companies approached you and said we want a piece of that. Um, I, I have, yep, have had a few, n- not any huge ones, not like you know, like the big major labels okay. who are going after you know the big pop stars. But uh, yep, have have had some smaller things. That and come you've about. turned them away. I've 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 turned them away, or I've I've, yep, I've decided you know I, I there's there's things certainly that are helpful for a musician. You can't turn away everything, and so to have people helping you do booking helping you with uh, you know, your merchandise, sales, stuff like that is very important. And some of that is built into a record label, but to try to kind of piece that out in a way that makes sense for an independent artist. Okay. Good. I want to talk about some of your covers. Here's one of your more popular ones. Let's see if folks recognize it. A lovely version of Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child Sweet of Mine. Sweet Child of Mine. Tell me about how you pick covers. Man, I, I, I try to pick songs that are, you know, that I like, obviously, and songs with a recognizable melody, and then something that would be interesting to do from a fingerstyle acoustic guitar perspective, you know. And, and so with, with um, Sweet Child of Mine, that one started because I, lear- I learned how to play that that classic guitar riff using only harmonics on the guitar and so these harmonics are where you just lightly touch the string in certain places and the string vibrates in a way that creates this kind of bell-like chime yes and that's it, the quality to yeah, that song. yeah so thanks for giving words to it yeah yeah uh trace bundy thanks for being with us yeah it's he, great to be here he grew up in buena vista and is a featured speaker at tedx boulder which takes place saturday at chautauqua auditorium he also performs friday at Soil Dove Underground in Denver. 
Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.